0: And we've been thinking about the imperative for innovation, how that's reshaping how cities are being governed. And all of that got thrown into a new light somewhat by the instance of COVID.
1: I'm Davos Rogers. This is City Road. And today, post-pandemic urbanism.
0: thought it was a great time to get this bunch of urbanists together to start thinking about what, what innovations are around and how they might steer us towards more just cities as we go into a recovery phase.
1: Pauline McGurk from the University of Wollongong.
0: I'm Pauline McGurk, I'm an urban geographer and I'm the director of the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space or Access at the University of Wollongong.
1: And yes, here is another podcast on COVID-19, or the effects of COVID-19 on our cities. Today, we're talking about post-pandemic recovery, and particularly post-pandemic recovery in the urban space. And Pauline's been working with a range of scholars to think through this issue.
0: Okay, so we are myself at University of Wollongong, Robin Darling and Sophia Melson at the University of Sydney, and Tom Baker at the University of Auckland. And we've been working together and thinking about innovation in urban governance. And what we've been thinking about has been born of the current focus on innovation and disruption as ways of dealing with the complex problems that cities all over the world have to negotiate. And we've been thinking about how the drive to innovate is reshaping how cities are being governed and about what are the implications of that.
1: So how does COVID-19 play into this?
0: So when COVID hit, we couldn't help but reflect on its entangled relationships with cities and the multiple kinds of urban innovations that we've witnessed as cities have come to terms with the pandemic. So there's been this period of forced experimentation induced by the emergency and the various ruptures that COVID
1: has imposed on us. So what is COVID doing to cities? What is this pandemic doing to the structure and the governance of cities?
0: So COVID and innovative responses to it will alter cities for better or worse. And it's timely then to ask, what are the implications of this for current and future cities and for the prospects for a just recovery? And we're also thinking about what part these innovations might play in shaping recovery pathways as we look towards urban futures that are inevitably going to be changed to some degree. Now, all of this puts lots of questions on the table about what's important in steering recovery towards urban outcomes that are just and that resist reproducing existing urban problems.
1: So you wanted to get a group of people together, a group of urbanists together to talk through these issues. What did you do? How did you have that conversation?
0: So to get a conversation going about this, we assembled a group of leading Sydney-based urbanists to get some thinking going about pathways towards a just urban recovery. We got Chris Gibson at the University of Wollongong, Emma Power at the University of Western Sydney, Jennifer Kent, Kurt Iverson and Ellie Davison, all from the University of Sydney, Christian Rumming from Macquarie University, and Chris Pettit from UNSW. Okay, it's twelve thirty. I think it's time for us to kick off. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Pauline McGurk. I am the director. We'll be
1: dropping into the workshop from this point on in the podcast, and we'll also hear from Sophia Malson and Robin Dowling about the workshop content to too. For
0: joining us today for this conversation on post-pandemic urbanism.
1: In the workshop, Emma Power talked about post-pandemic housing issues. Kurt Iverson talked about post-pandemic public space issues, and Jen Kent talked about transport. I start by asking Sophia Malson about the innovation dimensions of their discussions. On
0: on, live and work on Ewan Country, the lands of the Uluri, Darawal and Wadiwadi peoples.
2: So what we've seen with COVID is that it exacerbated and exposed these uh, vulnerabilities that were existing already in key dimensions of the urban. So, as we said before, housing, transport and public space. And if we look at housing, we've seen that it's positioned as a key site through which the pandemic has been experienced as a first line of defence, but also as the assumption that everybody has the ability to stay at home and quarantine themselves and be in lockdown. We know that's not evenly experienced. Not everybody has that opportunity. We also know that there's a big discrepancy between, um, I guess, the affordances if you own your own home or if you're a renter or if you have a mortgage. For some time prior to the pandemic, we've seen an increasing rate of people renting and sort of decreasing home ownership and this flaw has been exacerbated. And so a lot of tenants obviously being renters, couldn't afford to pay their rent. So the eviction moratorium was one way to sort of uh, stem immediate effects there. And for those who own the home, we had mortgage repayment holidays and various other sort of interventions there. What this does point to... It exposes these existing flaws in the system, but it also points to the possibility of rapid policy change.
3: We need to question how these aspects of cities enable the capacity for all people to survive. We'll jump
1: into the climate. workshop at this point and, and listen in so that's to that's Emma Power important talking important about housing.
3: Time. But I think that while there are particular challenges that COVID 19 itself raises, what's perhaps even more important is the impetus that this moment gives us for highlighting what has been working well and what needs to change in our urban systems? And I think that what's most remarkable is the rapid policy making that's been possible, which Christus referenced, and also the new ways forward that we've found to some of the most intractable policy challenges. This has shown us that things can change. Uh, and I believe it's important that we use this moment to mobilize energies towards a more just and caring urban future. And housing, of course, has a really central
2: role. Coming out of the pandemic um, and in terms of our recovery, Emma really spoke about having a sort of a just housing recovery that had care at the centre of it.
3: A just urban recovery, I believe, needs to be thought alongside a caring urbanism that puts the ability of people to meet their needs and to pursue a flourishing life at the centre of how we think about cities. In my work with um, Kathy Mee and Miriam Williams, we show that care doesn't just take place between people and cities, but is woven into the very fabric of cities. So through the ways that we design and construct cities, the ways that we govern cities and organise markets. And so when we're thinking about a just urban recovery, we need to question how these aspects of cities enable the capacity for all people to survive and flourish, And the second point is about the important... We
2: also discussed, or rather Emma also discussed, the need to reform tax mechanisms that incentivise the financialisation of housing, um, which concentrates wealth on the individual, and that if we took this as an opportunity to wind back some of these individual benefits, we could have a much more affordable and equitable housing market. Ellie as well spoke around how the pandemic has highlighted the existing inefficiencies with our actual designs of
3: housing of Aboriginal people in our urban spaces. Um, I think one of the first things, and it's a particular interest of mine, is kinship living. I think that everybody has experienced this uh, sense of isolation and the individual nature of our dwelling typologies is probably highlighted to people, Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal, the importance of communal living and what it might look like to challenge the norm when it comes to housing typologies and design, um, it is
2: a particular.
1: So that's housing. That what about in the transport space? At-
2: there's been a big shift to what were considered more appealing forms of transport when there's a pandemic on. So more active transport as well as less travelling. But coming out of that, uh, Jennifer Kent was well, we talking about the need to, to not underpin, underpin and strengthen the ideology of the individual car to spend on travel.
3: But looking further ahead, while we don't know much about the long-term impacts of COVID on transport, we do know that cities which recovered from the SARS virus showed a return to close to normal previous transport patterns and levels. However, this took a period of two plus years. Some leaders thinking in the transport space are predicting public transport levels will still just be about 75% of pre-COVID levels by the end of 2021. In simple terms, a just recovery will be one that pushes this figure higher as quickly but as safely as possible, because an equitable city is one with plentiful mobility options and widespread access to public transport for the trips that make up modern life. A car-dependent recovery is
2: not a just recovery. So what can we do to maximise public transport patronage safely and minimise congestion? So in transport, we also see a bit of a tension between uh, what are possibly better transport futures in that more active travel, less reliance on commuting daily and the private car, to coming out of lockdown, an increased reliance on the private car as people become scared around travelling on public transport and being in proximity to other people.
1: And there's also restrictions on how many people can go on buses and public transport.
2: Exactly. There are all those stickers about where you can and can't sit and where you can and can't stand. One of the important factors that was raised was this ability to not travel or to choose walking or riding itself uh, wasn't evenly experienced. So again, you'll find that um, the more privileged will be living closer to where they work or being able to not travel because they can work from home or having the option of walking or riding, whereas you have other less privileged, will be further out and will necessarily need to commute to get to work or may not have the infrastructure to stay at home or to walk to the shops and things like that.
1: Okay, so that's public transport. What about, Kurt Iverson was talking about public space.
4: Um, More public space is required...
2: Yeah, so Kurt brought up two key factors around public space in the pandemic. And the first is the time, the, around the provision of public space. And the second was around the actual the modes of policing, of policing public, public space. Some of those restrictions.
4: And so, um, as it's been widely discussed in some cities like Sydney, um, we've seen some extra public space provision taking place by reclaiming some of those machine spaces. For pedestrians and for cyclists through formal and informal interventions in those spaces. But now let me turn to policing and I guess ask the question about who might benefit even if we were able to create more public space in our cities. Uh, and that's not just a question of how much space there is, it's also um, a question of how those spaces are policed in the broadest sense of that word through actions by both the uniformed police, but also by other authorities and actors who seek to govern the use and uses of public space. And obviously, we still live in cities where some bodies are too often treated like they're out of place in public open spaces. And in Australian cities, just in the last few weeks, we've seen uh, this in several ways. We've seen it through the troubling use of new police discretionary powers through um, uneven application of COVID-related infringement notices. We've seen an increase in the number of formal notifications of racist harassment of people, of Asian appearance, especially in our public spaces, as well as evidence that those formal notifications are just the tip of a much bigger iceberg of racist harassment. And we've seen controversy over excessive police violence directed towards uh, an Aboriginal teenager in Surrey Hills, not to mention against the Black Lives uh, Matter protesters in Central Station last Saturday night here in Sydney. So a politics of public space that's focused only on the provision of public open spaces through... Pre-pandemic,
2: we had governments increasingly relying on privatised and commercialised arrangements to fund public space, for example, through advertising or hiring it out for festivals. And post-pandemic, we can see a potential decrease in this revenue so that we need to think around new ways of thinking around how we provide good public spaces and funding forms like the New Green Deal style arrangements, things like that might be one particular option. The other important aspect on, on public space, and this is something that we've known all along as well, is that not everybody is treated the same in public space. So we've seen uh, during the pandemic certain populations more targeted by policing around what is and what isn't appropriate in in a public space. We've seen homeless people moved off the streets. We've seen not just as part of the pandemic but a shift more broadly around the the reactions to Black Lives Matter and we have evidence in Australia that the policing is obviously very racially targeted, you know, in some cases. Uh, Kurt's argument is that we need to, again, post-pandemic, plan for the provision of public space that is, More inclusive so that it can provide access to everyone, again, not just the more privileged, and that we need to tackle racism and various other forms of exclusion as part of this new direction when we're creating public space.
1: You're on City Road on 2SCR 107.3 FM in Sydney and we're listening into to a workshop on post-pandemic urbanism, along with another 150-odd people who are tuned in via Zoom. We've already heard from Sophia Malson, Emma Power, Kurt Iverson, Ellie Davidson and Jen Kent, but in the back half of the workshop, the conversation turns to economy, urban planning and technology with Robin Dowling, Chris Gibson, Christian Rumming and Chris Pettit. And we wrap up this episode with a chat with Pauline McGurk about the importance of all of this. So let's start with this idea that at times of an extreme event, the government will do extreme things. How is the COVID moment a state of exception for the New South Wales government, say?
5: So the pandemic really is a state of exception to urban policy in the last 20 years.
1: Robin Dowling from the University of Sydney.
5: Because we saw a resurgence of state activity across urban policy regimes. So it became, you would see this across the pandemic, it actually became acceptable and in fact necessary for the state to act. So local government, state government and national government had to act in the urban space um in for for the for the pandemic and so it was actually quite an exceptional circumstance so it sort of went ac- against in some ways the last 20 years of, of of urban policy and what it meant is that policy became valued again like the the evidence-based policy in particular about you know what is it how are we going to create how are we going to manage uh, the movement of people around cities? How are we going to manage housing? How are we going to manage the movement of disease through standard evidence good policy? And so one of the things that we saw in the panel, we heard in the panel discussion was the importance of data in underpinning good policy. So Chris Pettit talked about the ways that there was a a real desire from a whole series of different sectors to understand, to use data to develop good policy.
6: English physician, John Snow, Uh, for those who have studied GIS, will know about his um, maps in London looking at um, cholera. And we go back to 1854 and the Broad Street water pump, so over 150 years ago, um, you know, he he was using data and evidence um, to inform um, a response to a major health challenge, which we are facing um, today. And so we've got these digital tools and technologies, a hundred years later, GIS arose. Um, more recently, we've had open data and Scott Hawken, um, um, Hoon Han and myself published a book on that last year. So there's a huge opportunity using these digital artifacts. And many who are presented and who are attending today are contributing to that data ecosystem. Um, we've got dashboards, so
5: we've uh, whether that be through tracking cycle movements through the city, and we know that Jen Kent talked about, you know, the increase in cycling, for example, so a whole series of, bit of data, you actually needed data to uh, develop policy to manage the disease and to manage the reaction to the disease. So, and we know, you know, data has always, has been important recently, but it's about how can you use it better? But I would also say on that using data to create policy is it there are absences in that. So Chris Gibson was also talking about you know data can only capture so much. It can't capture you know
7: what we we should be. Oh, I jumped the gun there. Thanks, Robin. I'm um, just reflecting on what Kurt and and Chris are saying. I mean, I think one of the things that strikes me about urban data and analytics are the remarkable blind spots and it's a bit of a self-serving shout out here I think to the qualitative researchers and ethnographers that are online that um, it's actually a lot of that that information the, the experiences the lived experiences and the stories that are, that are often missing into those those dashboards and so forth and I'm and I, I mean looking at the names of people that are online here just from what I can see here with with Emma Power and her work Sophie she make her Michelle Lobo Um, This is the work that actually details how people use the city, how they move around, how they care for each other, how they inhabit spaces. And I think that in all of that work, you actually see the power of the qualitative and of that that sense of lived experience. And I guess in the midst of a pandemic and then beyond, what we have to be really careful for and perhaps be better at arguing for is a way in which we could almost have an analogous real-time data capture of that lived experience, almost like you know Chris's sort of graph of the Twitter sentiment, but but in some in some ways find the means to be able to capture the richness and diversity of that lived experience and have that communicate back into whether it's rapid policy making or the kinds of decisions that, that Chris is talking about.
5: Um, There's been this I moment that governing an emergency, classically there. governing an emergency as disaster, is not in the urban space, has reaffirmed that you know urban policy is really important. But at the same time, what we've seen is that there's the, 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 the exception that is the pandemic has allowed governments to create exceptions again. So if I take quickly go back to the GFC, where one of the responses to the GFC from the national government was the nation building program, where... Um, look around Australian cities, there was a bunch of school halls that all looked the same. There was an insulation program, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and they were all fast tracked through the planning system. So there were exceptions made to the planning system so that these school halls and other things could be built without the standard of public consultation have. So Christian Rumming was talking about how the fast-tracking of various planning situations, whether that be social housing, high-rise development, infrastructure across the board. People
8: are employed in the construction sector uh, in Australia. So in April, the New South Wales government announced a planning system acceleration program, rather, where 48 projects uh, underwent fast-tracked assessment. The objective of the program was to, and I quote, accelerate the assessment and determination of projects that inject investment into the New South Wales economy and keep people in jobs during the COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. Uh, And similar schemes have been introduced in other states. So certainly planning has a vital role to play in in post-pandemic economic recovery. However, the challenge relates to the inevitable pressures from the development sector for these reforms to become the new status quo. Both the UDIA New South Wales and the Property Council of Australia have developed post-COVID recovery plans which call for fast-track rezoning and approvals, along with things like delayed development contributions um, and increased government subsidies. The development sector wants the system reformed, streamlined and fast-tracked. There's the real threat that COVID-19 might be used opportunistically by the development sector to further a reform agenda which it has long already uh, which has long been a central priority. The capacity for the for industry advocates to access political leaders and to spruik the employment and economic benefits of development means that calls for reform might be might gain more traction in the current environment. Facilitating development and by extension supporting uh, economic performance is but one objective of the planning system.
5: We will just lower our standards of public consultation because it's really important that we get these things done and and kickstart the economy. And that's the usual problems with what sort of city are you making. So the key will be in the post-pandemic is... How many of those do we as a society allow and when do they stop?
1: Mm. And what do you make of the government doing these exceptional things that they have said for a long time they couldn't do, like address homelessness, deal with other forms of housing crisis, for instance?
8: They don't know how to engage in the process and if they do, they're unlikely to do it That's
5: a great question because it shows that government you know, urban scholars always talked about is if certain intractable problems in cities need government intervention. This has actually just proven that hundredfold. But I think perhaps if I'm being more positive about it, it might also demonstrate to in a democratic way that government action is actually quite is positive, has good outcomes. And it isn't a detraction. It's actually an addition and a core part of the functionings of cities. So it's made quite visible what governments do and what governments can do in a city.
1: So we've heard a lot of different perspectives on urban governance and urban change what does this mean for innovation in the urban space, in urban policy and urban governance? It's
0: a great question, Dallas. I think there's probably three things that are really important here.
1: Pauline McGurk again.
0: The first, I think, is that COVID has made us focus on the state and state capacity in a very direct way. So we've had 30 years of neoliberal urban governance that's limited state intervention or that has at least limited it to just tolerated kinds of state intervention that are about the market and making markets and what covid's done is reacquainted us with the fundamental importance of the state in underpinning urban well-being whether it's economically socially um, environmentally in terms of public health and biosecurity the second thing I think, is that the pandemic has sharpened our focus on questions of who urban governance is for and to what ends cities are governed. So what are we driving towards? And in this moment of innovation or forced experimentation, whatever we want to call it, these questions really get brought to the fore. And if you think to what our panelists were talking about, they implicitly raise lots of questions about the values and the norms that drive urban governance. So we had Emma Power and Ellie Davidson comment on how we manage the provision of housing as a social good rather than as an asset. We had Kurt Iverson's comments about how do we provision and police public space in ways that are inclusive. Or Chris Gibson's comments on how do we regulate urban economies and labour markets in ways that are fair and that might facilitate other than capitalist forms of provision. So the broader pandemic situation gives us pause to question the emphases in urban governance on economic competitiveness, on, say, world-class global city status or privatized property. Christian Rumming pointed out, for instance, being a global city didn't matter very much in lockdown. I think pandemic times have really exposed the vulnerabilities of cities that are governed to these market-driven ends without a counterbalancing attention to explicit concerns around justice, care, equity, resilience, that other suite of values that I think became particularly highlighted as crucial during the pandemic. And we have a chance now to think and ask how might we innovate urban governance so that these other ends are more valued and more entwined. Whatever language it is you want to use to talk about those, whether it's urban commons or mutuality or flourishing or solidarity, inclusive prosperity, whatever it is, to get those sorts of ends that support the shared or the public life of cities um, into the, the governance mix. And finally then... I would say that COVID has illuminated how urban governance capacity is distributed, that capacity to steer action, to achieve collective purposes. It lies with the state, certainly. It lies with the private sector, with philanthropies, with not-for-profits, with organised communities. The last three decades has seen the state and the private sector at the fore as drivers of urban governance and that's given us these governance processes that are shaped around the market and individualized prosperity but covid has drawn out these covid has drawn out these other diverse modes of governing whether it's data driven governing public provision mutual aid community provision and a couple of things come out of this the first one is What innovations can we have that will provide the space and the opportunity for this wider range of purposes and practices to be integrated into urban governance? And the second one for me is how then might we renew what we might call the progressive public capacity of the state to support this wider range of of purposes and to use that to address some of the really intractable urban vulnerabilities that COVID has really brought to the surface in a very powerful
1: way. Because we're talking about different values, different urban values. And there, there was a kind of tension, I think, between the experience of people in their homes and valuing home and valuing cycling and public space and our healthcare system and the kind of market rationality of government. And we kind of, like home builder, we sort of see that come in there. And the need to get the economy going again. How, in the long term, do we resolve that tension where you're talking about neoliberalism being a driving force of urban policy and governance for a while, and we have this moment to kind of rethink it? But, you know, I'm just worried that we slot back into this kind of neoliberal agenda. And I can kind of see us slipping there already. Is there anything we can do? Is there anything to say about that at this point? Is there is there any way to capture the momentum of this moment and drive it forward?
0: Mm. That's a really great and really difficult question because I think there's um, we shouldn't romanticise this sort of appetite for change, this moment for change, because certainly it has been there, but at the same time, A lot of people in organisations just want no further disruption and a return to normal. So I think we do have to be careful to be overly romantic about it. And I think you're dead right. I think we are seeing certain decisions being made about how to remobilise, how to open up the city again, how to let the economy recover. And I think it's really important that we don't allow that to be depoliticized. And there's a chance that can happen because we just want to get back to normal and we just want things to get going again. But we know that the steps that are taken in recovery are involve political decisions. What do we allow to open up? What circulations do we allow to start happening again and in what order, and who gets affected by that? because we know we know that the emergency conditions didn't affect everyone the same way, we know that recovery decisions won't affect everyone in the same way. And I suppose as critical urbanists, it behoves us to keep a critical analytical gaze on exactly what decisions are made and keep the pressure on about publicising who benefits, who may not benefit to the same extent, what effect will they have? And that's long been a project of of critical political geography, I think, political urban geography.
1: You've been listening to City Road on 2SCR, 107.3 FM in Sydney. I'm Dallas Rogers. A big thank you to the organisers of the Post-Pandemic Urbanism Workshop, Pauline McGurk, Robin Dowling, Sophia Malson and Tom Baker. And also a very special thanks to all the speakers. That's all for this week. We are wildly out of time. See you next time.